I don't know if you guys can feel this. Hopefully you can. Um, there is such a thick, heavy presence in here right now. And um, during worship, I actually got two words of knowledge. So before we move forward, I want to call out these words of knowledge and pray for some healing real quick. The first one I got was plantar fasciitis. Does anyone have plantar fasciitis that they would like? If you'd stand up. AJ, anyone else? Okay, over there. I see three so far. Okay, and then the second one I got was arthritis. Is there anyone dealing with arthritis? I specifically felt like it was in the, right, uh, the left wrist. If you have arthritis, go ahead and stand up real quick and we'll pray for you. One, two. Okay, if you're around them, could you either extend your hand out towards them or if they feel comfortable, go ahead and lay hands on them. We'll go for plantar fasciitis first. Lord, we just invite your healing presence right now. You're already here. And so we invite you to heal, Lord. The very act of standing up is an act of faith, Lord, a response to the word of knowledge. We command this foot to be whole right now in the name of Jesus. We command these feet to be whole right now in the name of Jesus. I speak to every tendon and every ligament to function according to its original intended design, its original intended kingdom design right now in the name of Jesus. You guys keep receiving that. And then for arthritis, um, quick testimony, the Lord actually healed me of arthritis completely and totally. So I believe that the Lord can heal you of arthritis right now. So in the name of Jesus, we just welcome your healing power right now to touch those who stood up for arthritis. I speak to all inflammation. I command it to go down right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, you did it for me. You can do it for them. I speak to uh, the joints, any tightness in the joints, any pain in the joints. I, I command it to go right now in the name of Jesus. Just soak in that for a few more minutes. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Test it out. You still feel pain? I'd say about only 20%. 20%? Okay. This 20% is left? Awesome. <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone else have any relief in pain at all? We'll pray again. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. Hmm. Lord, let there be new joints where there needs to be new joints, new ligaments where there needs to be new ligaments, new tendons where there needs to be new tendons, Lord, right now in the name of Jesus. Mm. Lord, we just invite the wind of your divine presence right now, Lord, to swirl around those ligaments and joints in that pain. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. We'll, uh, we'll pray again at the end. Pray again at the end. Oh, man. Well, uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you guys yet, some of, I've known most of you guys. Ashley and I were here for three years, and then we moved to Raleigh, and then we moved back. So uh, it's weird how the Lord's plan works sometimes. Uh, but I'm the youth pastor here at the gate, and uh, I love my students very much. Most of them are sitting back there in the back right now. We've got some sitting, some former students that are here 
right now as well. Uh, love you guys, and thank you for, for being here this morning. Um, so I'm in a bit of a predicament because um, the one thing that I wanted to teach on this morning uh, is kind of up in the air right now. <sighs> Jesus, help. It's a good prayer. It's the prayer Jesus always answers. Jesus, help. There we go. So, um, I don't know how many of you guys feel this way, but I've often felt like I don't belong. Um, I grew up in a very sports-centered family. Um, I don't know how many of you guys, I, don't, I, I hardly know anything about sports. Um, I played sports and injured myself and then quit. Um, but my dad, who, my dad is actually here today this morning. Um, I, uh, my, my dad played basketball in high school, and then uh, I have two cousins that, that were very much gifted in basketball. I have another cousin that just signed to play at Vanderbilt. Um, I have my brother who got a full ride scholarship to play basketball in college as well. Um, and so I grew up around sports. Every family event, there was a football or a basketball game on or some kind. And I, I got to the point where I decided I needed to try to fit in. And so I dove headfirst into sports ball, all the sports balls. I, I dove headfirst into football. I dove headfirst into, even if I didn't know what I was talking about, I made it look like I knew what I was talking about. It'd be like watching a baseball game and someone's side and be like, technical foul, tee him up, get him out of there. You're like, there's no technical fouls in baseball at all, Jordan, please stop talking. And um, so I, w- I would make myself try to fit in, even to my own family sometimes, Whenever uh, my cousins would get together to hang out, it was always, let's go play basketball. And uh, I, I sucked, just to be completely and totally honest. Um, I did play two years in high school. Um, I played one year in middle school. Um, and uh, I, I played one year in middle school, and my dad was actually my basketball coach. And the whole reason I signed up to play basketball in middle school is because I wanted my dad to be my basketball coach because I wanted something to bond over. My, my, my brother uh, and my dad bonded over sports most of my life. They still do. They still watch basketball games and everything like that together. And uh, I, I decided to play. And uh, it was the final game of the season. We were playing against our rivals. Um, I was playing, and it was a church intramural league, so we didn't really have rivals. It was just more of those kids. And um, so I played for Hickory Grove Baptist Church and um, final game of the season. Uh, and it was brutal. It was all out brutal because we had played this team three times before and every time they had absolutely killed us. So uh, my team decided we're going to go up there and kill them first, you know, like Christians do. And um, we get out onto the court and all of our starters foul out within like the first quarter every single one of them. And so uh, we kept on taking tees because we were like, well, we got to keep them in the game. We have to keep playing. And ultimately it got to the point where the ref was like, I can't keep teeing you guys up. These are all your players either forfeit the game or like, no, we're going to keep playing. The other team agreed. And uh, it got all the way down to like maybe the last minute. And I was so bad that I only got put in the last minute when we were either getting creamed or we were so far ahead that even I couldn't mess it up. (laughs) 
And so the last minute of the game, all of our players are, are fouled out. Um, they, my dad is looking down the bench to see who is left to go into the team, who's left to go into the game. And he looks down and he sees me looking back at him down the bench and waving. And he just like, he's like, Jordan, you're in, you're in. And he gets me off over here on the corner and he says, now, whatever you do, I think we only had four points. Like that was the main difference for one minute left, four point game. We were down by four points. So my dad looks at me and he goes, whatever you do, don't look at the ball. Don't think about looking at the ball. Don't touch the ball. Don't get in. If the ball is on this end of the court, I want you on this end of the court. So what ends up happening? As soon as I step out onto the court, I'm standing at the three-point line. I actually kind of between three-point and half court. And somebody passes me the ball. And I pop it from half court thinking this is going to be the time for me to shine. Like this is final game. I'm just, it's just going to be nothing but net. I pop it and it maybe misses the goal by 10 feet. Like it just goes, it is nowhere near the goal. And I like hurl the thing. Like it just goes nowhere near the goal. And I look over at my dad standing at uh, where the bench is. And he just has his back turned towards the wall. Just like looking at the floor. Doesn't even want to look to see what's going over here anymore. But uh, someone fouled me as I threw up the shot and somebody came over, uh, the ref came over and said, all right, you get three shots, you, you get free throws. So they took me over to the, the foul line and I was like a white shack. I could not make free throws to save my life. <laughs> and so again, my dad still has his back turned towards me at this point of the game. And he, they give me the ball and I'm just like, I'm just going to do it like everyone else does it. It's, it's simple. You know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's just nothing but basic hydraulics. You know, you just throw the ball in this certain direction. It goes into the net. So I just pop a shot. And again, it goes straight. I had perfect spin. Beautiful spin. What they call English I had just perfect spin on it. And that was the best part of it because it went nowhere near the goal again. Um, they gave me the ball again. And I'm thinking, okay. This is it. I could sink these. I could sink this next one, rim it, get somebody at the three-point line. They can sink it, and then we'll be up. Uh, we'll be tied. We can go into overtime. Give me the ball again. I go up for another shot. Completely miss it. In fact, this time I shoot over the goal. I put so much force behind it. It actually, I believe, if you go to the Hickory Grove Baptist Church uh, north location, the one that's over in Mallard Creek, there's actually a, a hole in the rafters from where the ball hit. So much force behind it. Uh, it was almost inhuman. And uh, the final, final third shot, and I knew that there was no way. There's absolutely no way we were going to win the game. And I look over at my dad, and I'm thinking, I, I at least want to get one point. One point. Just one point. So we can all celebrate. I know there wouldn't really be that much celebrating because we would lose by three points. But at least we could celebrate that I got one point in the game. And I look over at my dad again. He's standing on the foul line. And he can see the look of desperation in my eyes. And he makes a movement where he just goes. <laughs> and I'm like, Dad, I'm not doing a granny shot. Like my, my, my point this game will not be a granny shot. <laughs> Needless to say, I did the granny shot and I got one point that entire season. So I went down in history. 
Um, but anyway, uh, I, I feel like uh, the temptation when you don't feel like you belong is often to change yourself. The temptation when you don't belong is to try to make other people see you in a different light. And I feel like oftentimes for Christians specifically, the, the temptation that you don't belong is often directed towards God and towards others. Um, does anyone else feel like that sometimes? Have, have any of you guys ever struggled with wondering what God thinks about you or what other Christians think about you and whether or not you even belong in the church, the very place that you're called yeah. to belong? Some of you guys may feel that with people at work. Uh, some of my students may feel that with people at school. Um, other Christians may push you out. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that one of the biggest struggles in the life of a believer is understanding where and how we fit in our relationship with God and with others. Yeah. And thankfully, this is a theme we see throughout Scripture as well. It's actually something that God created a little pre-designed package for us that sometimes we tend to skip over when we're reading. And I, we're actually going to read a really awesome passage of Scripture in a second. Before I do that, I have to tell you another story so that you know where we're going. About four to 5,000 years ago, give or take a couple hundred to thousand years, uh, there was a man. This man's name was Abraham. And Abraham had a promise with God. God came to Abraham one day and said, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a family, the very thing that you don't have. In fact, I'm going to give you this family and to show you that I'm going to give you a family. You're actually going to have a son as a prophetic declaration that a family is coming. In fact, why don't you look up into the stars and see how many stars there are as uh, you can't even begin to number or count them. That is how many offspring you are going to have. As far as as much sand as there is on the seashore, that's how many descendants and offspring you will have. And so years pass by. And uh, nothing happens. And then one day, Abraham is uh, sitting outside by himself. I, I, he you know, had cattle and everything, so I just I picture like a farm out in the middle of nowhere, sitting by a tree, and the Lord shows up to him. The Lord shows up to him and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you to make sure, just to show you, I'm going to seal myself to you in this way. And so God says, what I want you to do is I want you, sorry to all the animal lovers, I want you to go and get a bunch of animals. And he lists a bunch of animals. And he says, I want you to cut them in half straight down the middle and I want you to align them in a row. And, and what was happening is at this time in the ancient Near East, which is the culture that the Old Testament came from, they would do what was called a covenant cutting ceremony. And a covenant cutting ceremony was to blend uh, two people together. It was actually to make a family. Uh, when we think of covenant, we think of contract. And it's radically different than a contract. It is included in a contract, but it's something completely and totally different. It would be like if you were buying a home and the bank like promised that if something didn't happen up on their end, they would kill themselves. It is so much more than a contract. It is, it is a lifelong joining together. And so God and Abraham, Abraham, God goes to Abraham and says, we're going to cut a covenant together. And, and, and God shows up. And, and, and when God shows up, there's a very important detail that we tend to miss. We just tend to read right over it. And the detail is that it says Abraham fell asleep. Abraham fell asleep and he watched as a blazing fire pot descended and began to pass back and forth 
between these cut-up animal pieces. And why that is significant is that whenever there would be a covenant-cutting ceremony, the two parties would walk between the pieces together to signify that they were making this union. And what's interesting is that Abraham never passes between the pieces. Says he goes to sleep, he sees the blazing fire pot, and then he wakes up. So what does that mean? Well, later on in the text, we read again that the Lord counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. And it's a very important detail. So I want you to keep that in mind as we continue on. Counted his faith as righteousness. And we actually don't see this pick up again until a couple thousand years later at a very small church. Uh, There's an apostle by the name of Paul who is writing a letter to this church in Galatia. And uh, the Galatian church is a very important church because it is showing one of the first signs of a battleground in the new church. This is one of the earliest Christian letters ever written. It's a very ancient letter, and it shows the struggles of the early church. And one of the main struggles of the early church was a group began to infiltrate the church known as the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers taught was that faith in Jesus gets you through the door, but it's keeping the law that actually keeps you a part of the family. So it's great that you believed in the resurrected Jesus. It's great that you believed in Jesus and you've become a part of the church, but it's actually going to be circumcision, ouch, that keeps you a part of the family, keeps you in. Yeah, rough, I know. First time I read that, I was like, ah, yeah. Let's go to uh, Galatians real quick. Galatians chapter two. This is where the story kind of picks up. Again, we don't hear this language of, Righteousness by faith for a few more years. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thank you for your word, Jesus. What is the law? Law is a very interesting concept because typically in evangelical cultures, uh, Pentecostal cultures or whatever you choose to identify yourself as, um, when we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments. In fact, when we read in Romans and Galatians and all these other places and we read law, we usually swap it out with Ten Commandments. And the truth of the matter is, is that the Ten Commandments are only a tiny sliver of the law. When Paul uses the word law, he's actually using it as shorthand for the entire Mosaic system. 
which includes the Ten Commandments, but it also includes the sacrificial laws. It includes the temple itself. And so when Paul says that no one is justified by the law, he's not just saying keeping keeping the Ten Commandments. He's saying no one is justified by whatever they do in regards to the whole law. Now, let's talk about justification, trying to set this up a little bit before we move forward. What is justification? When, when typically we talk about justification, again, within the kind of traditional Christian evangelical sphere, when we talk about justification, I'm sure most of you have heard it's justified, never sinned. They kind of shorten it into that. It's, the, it's typically taught as if it's a legal declaration. At the moment you place faith in Jesus, the Lord declares that you are righteous. It is just as if you'd never sinned. But the issue is, while that may be true, there's an entirely different element that we're missing as well. This entire different element that we're missing as well is covenantal. So we have this understanding of judicial justification, of being declared in the right, being declared righteous, being declared, uh, not, I don't want to use the word sinless because we're not sinless, but being declared forgiven of our sin. But the law first mentioned, most of you guys have probably heard the law first mentioned. The law first mentioned is a hermeneutical law, hermeneutics having to do with the way that we read scripture throughout uh, the Old Testament to the New Testament. The hermeneutical law first mentioned declares that, that when we see the first mention of something, that becomes the interpretational lens of how we see that throughout the rest of Scripture. So when we read justification by the law, it's important to remember that it actually means righteousness. In fact, the words righteousness and justification have the same root word, and they're often translated uh, the same way. In fact, in the translation I just read from the English Standard Version, there's a footnote that says, or justify righteousness by faith. So what is righteousness? When we're reading the story of Abraham and God, and we're reading the story of what's happening in the Galatian church, what they were trying to say is, you, you, you come in through Jesus, but you stay through all the ritualistic sacrifices. You stay through your keeping of the Ten Commandments. You stay through... You guys know how outrageous that is? Imagine if you were still under the law. Let me, let me put this out real quick. No one has been under the law for 2,000 years. Yeah. It's impossible. Temple was destroyed 70 AD. As much as you want to try to stay under the law, you can't. It's physically, spiritually impossible. Uh, you could be legalistic, though. So, but have fun with that. It just makes your relationship with God much, much harder and much, much worse. Um, if you have ever grown up in kind of like the revivalistic culture of of, of whether or not God loves you depends on how much you pray that one day or if you fasted that year or how much Bible you read every day. It's not, has nothing to do with it. In fact, the, the, the justification by faith, the, the reason why this has often been misconstrued is 500 years ago in the year 1517, a man by the name Martin Luther was studying his Greek New Testament and he stumbled upon this statement the just shall live by faith. And it blew his mind because for years he had been told that, no, the just shall live by their works. This was at a time when um, the church was a political power. The church was a thing that they would try to sell indulgences, indulgences being the thing to get out of hell 
free card of, there was a statement that says every time an indulgence is bought, every time a coin uh, hits this thing, a, a, a person is freed from purgatory. And so the Catholic church often taught that if you have friends and family members who are in purgatory right now and you want them to quickly get to heaven, you need to spend money money, money, money. And, and they funded, this is how, how they actually built St. Peter's Basilica. Like it was from this money of that they raised during this time. And, and, and Martin Luther stumbled upon this verse and it completely changed his worldview. The just shall live by faith. It's not in keeping the law. It's not in what I do for God. It's, it's my faith. And so the Reformation started, and we're still feeling the after effects of the Reformation today. 500 years, and we're still feeling the ripple effects. But I would argue that Martin Luther didn't go far enough. Martin Luther, while it's, it's awesome, and, and it's the revelation that he carried of, of justification by faith, that we have this legal declaration of being in the right, of having our sins forgiven. While that is awesome and good, it's not the whole picture. In fact, Martin Luther read Scripture. I would, I would argue most of the Reformers read Scripture through a law lens. Martin Luther was trained to be a lawyer. John Calvin was trained to be a lawyer. And so they read Scripture through this lens of law. God is a judge in heaven and he has a gavel with a black robe and a white wig. And whenever you do something good, like there's a check mark. Whenever you do something bad, he's ready to hurl a lightning bolt at you. And this was, this was the picture that we've had for God for 500 years. And then lately, within the last... Uh, maybe 50 to 60 years, men like Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright, two of my favorite biblical scholars, have, have proposed this new understanding. They call it the new perspective on Paul. That maybe we got it wrong. Maybe that's not all of it. It's true that you can get that understanding of judicial justification from the book of Romans, but you don't get it from Galatians. If you try to read that understanding of justification in this text, it makes absolutely no sense. So what does justification by faith mean? Justification or being declared righteous is the covenantal and judicial declaration that one has been forgiven of their sins and restored to right relationship with God through placing their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ which then places that one person into the covenantal family of God. That is what we have been missing. Places you into the covenantal family of God. When you hear the gospel, when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you respond in faith to that message, your faith is putting you in the same place as Abraham 5,000 years ago where you then become the offspring that was promised to him. You have entered into the covenant family of God. That is what ecclesia means, which then places one into the covenantal family of God where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, eventually resulting in the future declaration of acquittal on judgment day. See, this is why this is important. The keeping the law, specifically circumcision, specifically circumcision was seen as the family marker it was seen as who was in and who was out. How you got into the door, what was the member, I don't know. Are you circumcised? Well, we need to find out. I have no idea how that worked out. But circumcision was the marker of finding out who was in and who was out of the covenant family of God. 
Paul is actually showing a double standard. They knew the law didn't justify them. He said, we know for a fact that keeping the law justifies no one. They were keeping a double standard because they knew that the law didn't justify them. They even knew it was faith. But they tried to place it on the new Christians. If you want to be a part of who we are, you have to follow this rule. I would argue, um, I would argue that the covenant marker of who is in and who is out today is the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, and faith in Jesus. That is the marker of who is in and who is out. And if you have faith and if you have that spirit inside of you that cries, Abba, Father, if the spirit inside of you today as we were worshiping was crying out, Abba, Father, I want to be close to you. I want to be with you. You're in. You're in. There's no striving. There's nobody that's better than somebody else. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. You know how brash of a statement that was. No Jew, no Gentile, meaning that everyone is on the same playing field. There's no promises that apply to one person that do not apply to another person. There is no other side of God that only applies to one specific people group and not another people group. When you place faith in Jesus, you are included in the covenantal family of God. In fact, the wall of separation, as Paul argues in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 6, has been torn down. The law, hear me very strongly with this, the law will never and has never been binding on you as a new covenant believer. Ever. Doesn't matter how red some preacher gets in the face when they're shouting at you how you need to walk in holiness. The law has never and will never apply. It has not applied to anyone in 2,000 years. In the new covenant, we're under the law of love. Jesus said, how, how will they know that you are my disciples? Their love. Paul, throughout his letters, begins to talk about this law of love, the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. The only law that we have is that we love one another as he has loved us. Why is that important? Because it's a change from what he said earlier in the letter. Originally he said, I want you to love each other as you love yourself. Why is that important? Because that leads to all sorts of nightmares. Because you can hate yourself and still be a Christian. You can despise yourself and still be a Christian. In fact, I would argue that's shoved down most people's throats. You're just a worm. You're not worthy. Total depravity and all that nonsense. You love one another as I have loved you. What is, how has he loved you? Self-sacrificial love is the only law. The spirit, faith, and love. Does that sound good to you guys? Spirit, faith, and love. What does this mean? It means that there is no us and there is no them in the kingdom. Have you guys ever been around superhero Christians? There is no us and there is no them. There are people that, even though Jesus tore down the wall of separation, there are a lot of people who try to rebuild it. You know, they'll tell you that um, even, even growing up, you know, Paul makes this statement of eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you will prophesy. 
And in some churches, that has become the dividing wall of who is in and who is out. Oh, we only want the people who can prophesy to be on stage. We only want the people who have the gift of healing to be able to participate in all of this. Sorry, you can't be on leadership if you don't speak in tongues. Jesus tore down the wall and we rebuilt it. Specifically in evangelical culture. There is only us and we. There is no us and them. There is only us and we. And we are a unified kingdom family of God. We are a unified kingdom covenantal family of God. So what does this mean? What does all of this mean? It means, first off, that division in the body of Christ for any matter is an affront to the gospel and a slap in the face to Jesus himself. Any division for any matter is an affront to the gospel and a slap in the face to Jesus Christ and his gospel. If Jesus died to tear down a wall of division and then we rebuild it, wouldn't you say that would be a slap in the face to him? Yeah. Yeah, I would too. It's like Jesus is knocking down this wall and he looks back behind him and we've got bricks and we're just laying them right back up on top of each other. Number two, there are no hoops to jump through to belong. It's another big one. If faith is the marker of who is in and who is out, that means that there are no hoops to jump through in order to get to be part of the family or to get closer to God. Imagine what would happen today if you went home to loved ones who, who don't believe in Jesus or you went back to work around people who don't believe in Jesus and I don't know how many times this has happened to you guys, but as soon as you tell someone you're a Christian or someone finds out you're a Christian, it's like the whole relationship dynamic changes. And they constantly turn back to, oh, I want to come to church one day, but I got to quit smoking. I want to come to church one day, but I got to quit drinking. I want to come to church one day, but I keep cussing. There are no hoops. No hoops at all. Number three, and we're going to talk about this in a second. More about this in a second. This means that freedom and supernatural empowerment are your birthright. Freedom. Freedom from the law, freedom from man's expectations Mm -hmm. is yours. And supernatural empowerment, the ability to walk in the miraculous, the thing that's promised. As you continue on through the book of Galatians, you get mainly into like chapter 3 and chapter 4. Paul begins to argue from the place of receiving of the Spirit. What is one of these signs that are supposed to come to those who are a faith to the sentence of Abraham? It's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the infilling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so when you place faith in Jesus and you become part of the covenantal family of God, the supernatural lifestyle is yours, whether or not you know it. In fact, I've tested this, and this may freak some of you guys out. Um, Because it doesn't fit within some theological boxes, and that's totally and completely fine because it ruined me the first time it happened. I was taught growing up, maybe some of you guys have been taught this as well, and I hope I don't step on any toes, so please hear my heart. I was taught growing up of a, a doctrine that was known as the doctrine of initial evidence that someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit when and if they speak in tongues. But then I began to stumble upon people who had never spoken in tongues their entire life. If they were operating in prophecy, they were operating in healing from the moment they got saved. 
In fact, it, it began to blow my mind even further when I began to read in some of Paul's letters where he says, this faith, this uh, baptism that you've been baptized into, we've, we've received one baptism in the Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians. So I began to test this theory out. I don't know how many of you guys know who John Wimber is, but I began to listen to old school John Wimber tapes, the signs and wonders and miracles conferences from back in, I was getting to say way back in the 80s, but I didn't want to offend some of you guys. It was 1986, the signs and wonders conference by John Wimber. If you want to watch it, they're all 10 sections are on YouTube. They're like three hours long. I binged them all in a day. I love John Wimber. John Wimber began to talk about his personal experience in this of, of where people would come to him and say, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he said, you already are. You just don't know it yet. And he'd say, well, what gift do you want? And they'd say, well, I want to speak in tongues. And he would like lay his hands on their tongues and say, well, speak in tongues then. And the person would begin to speak in tongues. Well, I really want to prophesy. And he would touch his hand to his forehead and say, go ahead and start prophesying. You have my permission. And the person would begin prophesying. Supernatural empowerment is your birthright, whether or not you know it or not. There's an indwelling presence in all of us that gives testimony to the fact that we belong to God. That's what, when the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father, it's a testimony to the fact that we have this indwelling presence in us. Some of y'all ain't ready for that yet. We'll keep moving. (laughs) But you're not ready for that, though. Let's keep on moving forward. Galatians 2, verses 19 through 20. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Uh, You are free right now if you have faith in Christ. You are free from your old nature and from works. Again, whether or not you know it. Oftentimes we'll read the letters of Paul and we'll get to the statement where it almost seems like Paul is having this existential crisis where he's like, I know what i got to do, but sometimes I don't feel like I should do it and then I've got to do this and, and then this is what I want to do. But this thing wars within me and we've bought into the lie that we still have our old nature. The old nature and the law played off of each other, and that's what made you sin. It's what the book of Colossians is about. Paul says in the book of Colossians that that old nature was crucified with Christ. And then we've tried to reread that text. We try to reread Paul's letters where it says, I die daily, and we think that that's talking about crucifying the flesh every day. It has nothing to do with that at all. He faced persecutions every day. He was an apostle going from town to town preaching Jesus. In fact, Paul died and was resurrected. He died daily, literally. The law and our flesh, the law and the sin nature work off of each other. They play off each other and make you believe that your life, freedom, and joy, and even your relationship with God is predetermined by how you act and by how much you do. Your faith in Jesus releases grace, supernatural empowerment into your life. We do good works. This, hear me out on this part. I'm not anti-good works. In fact, I believe that if you have faith in Jesus and the Spirit is in you crying out, Abba, Father, it's going to spur you to do good works. But we don't do the good works to get the faith and the grace that comes from Jesus. We do it from grace and faith. 
We find our life and freedom in Jesus. Death and bondage is the result of the law. If you are in Christ right now, if you have said yes to Jesus and you're included in this covenantal family of God, your old nature is dead. Your old nature is dead. You have freedom. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you right now this very second. Doesn't that just make you want to prophesy over people? Yeah, yeah come on. That's how, we, that's how probably we're going to close. I'm just going to fire tunnel. When, one of the things I learned in ministry is when in doubt, fire tunnel. But in a, in a, in a COVID, COVID, uh, COVID may not allow that. Get some emails later. Um, in Christ, this is, I'm closing with this. In Christ, you are free from your old nature. You're free from law and works. And you're released into the world as free sons and daughters. You belong in the family of God. In fact, that's the message that I feel like the Lord brought me here to tell you guys today. Whether or not you know it, whether or not you think you're worthy of it, the moment you hear the gospel and you say yes, you're included. And you're marked with the seal that is the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of things to come. What are the things to come? It's between you and Jesus. I tell the students often... um, that, you know, whatever, what, what do they want to do one day? Some of them will say, well, like one day I want to be a doctor. That's cool. We'll be a doctor. Just go with the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to get married one day. Well, get married. Just go with the Holy Spirit. You, you get a co-labor with everything that God has for you in your future. You do it with the Holy Spirit. So what are the things to come? You follow in the Spirit, wherever that leads you. As a united covenantal kingdom family of God. Let's all stand up. Now, whenever we talk about this, I could feel it kind of picking up in the room. Whenever you talk truth, whenever you preach truth, Whenever you confront lies, those lies like to build strongholds. And I'm sure that as I was talking, some of you guys were just rapid firing everything you've ever heard your whole life about how you're not worthy and how you don't deserve it and, and how you're just a worm and, and you know God can't look at sin, which blows my mind because he did in Genesis. Um Lies often pop up. And what I want to do right now is I want to confront those lies so that we leave here as a unified kingdom covenantal family. Yeah. So I want everyone to close their eyes, please. Just take a few moments. I want you to... Uh, and just, just begin to align your spirit with Jesus right now. Just kind of, actually, I want you to picture yourself with your eyes closed, standing before Jesus. Notice every detail about him. Look at his feet and look at whatever he's wearing. 
If you can see his face, and I say that specifically, if you can see his face, look into his eyes. What do his eyes say? Once you have him there, I want some of actually before I continue on, some of you guys can't see his face. There's a specific reason why you can't see his face, and that's because you're believing a lie about him. And that means that this message today was for you. I want you to ask Jesus why you can't see his face. And he's going to tell you something, or he's going to show you something. Whatever he tells you, I want you just to give it to the Lord. Whether you have to hold your hands out in front of you, whatever it is, just say, Lord, I give this to you, and I ask for a truth in return. I give this to you, and Lord, I want you to tell me the truth. Tell me the truth about you. Tell me the truth about me. Listen to what he says. One of the walls going up right now is that this is weird. This isn't weird. This has been going on in the church for 2,000 years. This is contemplative prayer. Now I want you to try to look at his face again after you receive that truth. Look deeply into his eyes. Now we're going to approach this in two different ways. Now that we have that blockage out from between you and Jesus, now we're going to ask Lord, what lie am I believing about those around me? Because the truth is that some of you don't feel like you're a part of the family. Or if you do, you feel like you're the, as they call it, the red-headed stepchild. Lord, what lie am I believing about those around me? Some of you guys are going to hear like they don't like me or they think I'm weird or I'm too new or doesn't matter how new you are, you belong. And once you have that lie, again, I want you to hold it out to Jesus. Say, Jesus, take this and replace it with the truth. And I want you to let that truth sink. Let that truth sink in. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your, your united covenantal kingdom family. Thank you, Lord, for every individual in this room who makes up that family, Lord. Every, every background, every race, we just we, we welcome you and invite you, Lord, to bond us together in your spirit, that seal that marks us as a covenant family member. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.